live from Sydney. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Rachel Rosenthal. Rachel recently finished her doctorate at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where she is on the Talmud faculty. She is a fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute and teaches in a variety of settings, both academic and traditional. Dr. Rachel, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, and please just call me just Rachel, it's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Mazel tov on your recent doctorate. Thank you. Thank you very much. I shouldn't ask how long it took, the whole process? Um, well, it took six and a half years to do the doctorate. And before that, I learned Talmud for, for uh, full-time for four years in the yeshiva. So altogether, ten and a half years. Oof. Yeah. How did you first get into Talmud? Um, it was actually an accident. So um, when I graduated from college, I took a job teaching at a Jewish day school. And it wasn't a great fit for me, and I had a very hard year. And I think first year out of university is often very hard. Um, and I decided that for the summer, I wanted to just do something for myself. And my roommate at the time taught at this place called the Drisha Institute. And she said, you should come learn at Drisha for the summer. And I said, okay. And I showed up on the first day with an art scroll Talmud because I'd never learned Talmud before. And so I, there was no way I was gonna learn it in the original. And my teacher said, that's not allowed in this classroom. And I said, but I don't know Talmud. And she said, well, you're never gonna learn if you have a translation. And so I got a new Talmud and we were learning Bava Metzia, we were learning the rules about the watcher and my, my Chavruta, my study partner and I constructed this whole situation because they were talking about if the owner leaves fruits with the person um, to watch them and the fruits are spoiling, the, owner, the, the watcher is meant to take the fruits and sell them and then hold onto the money for the original owner. But the word um, in Hebrew for fruit is peirot and it's spelled the same way as the word for cows which is parot. And so we constructed this whole scenario where the cows were going bad, maybe they were gonna die soon, so they had to kill the cows and sell the cows. We got to class, this was all totally wrong. And it was an interesting experience for me because I generally did not like being wrong, but there was something about Talmud, even though I had no idea what was going on, that really spoke to me. And I, at the end of my first week at Drisha, called my parents and I said, just so you know, I'm gonna quit my job and I'm gonna go learn Talmud full time. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That was pretty shocking to them, but they said, as long as you can support yourself, you can do what you want. And so I taught for one more year and then I quit my job um, and I went to, to Drisha and I studied there full time for four years. Um, and then I went to graduate school for six and a half years till I finished my doctorate. Muscle though. Thank you. That must have been a tough year in between when you decided you want to study Talmud all the time when you actually got to. Yeah, it was a tough year. Um, Luckily, my roommate who had taught at Drisha and who had told me to go to Drisha was um, at the time working on her doctorate and was studying for her comprehensive exam. So she would learn with me once a week to help her prepare, which was a great act of generosity on her part because I knew nothing about nothing. Right. So, um, and I took some evening classes to try to, to hold myself over. But yeah, it was, it was hard knowing that, there was, that I had found what I wanted to be doing to not be doing it during What was it about Talmud that, <laughs> that, you, uh, that got you at first? It was just, it was so weird, um, but it was so endlessly interesting. And I think part of what it was, was that I'd never, 
encountered something before where the goal wasn't to get to the right answer, that the, the, mm. the goal was the process and not the outcome. Um, and I don't know why that appealed to me so much, but I think I found that really appealing. And I think the other thing that appealed to me was that it didn't feel like something that if I did it for a year, it would be easy, that it felt like it would be endlessly challenging. Um, and the last thing is just that the rabbis, they're, they're, they're strange, but I mean that in a good way. Mm. Um, and they're really funny sometimes. Um, and they think all kinds of interesting, crazy thoughts. And it's just really interesting. Like it wasn't, it was in, you know, even though I lived a very meaningful Jewish life, I didn't feel that learning was part of my religious expression. It wasn't a spiritual thing for me. It was just endlessly intellectually stimulating. What was your, what was your meaningful Jewish life like before that? Um, well, I came from a family that I like to call Zocher Shabbat. So we were very, um, it's, it's, it's a useful descriptor, actually, because we, we were not um, keeping the restrictions around Shabbat, but we very much, we had Friday night dinner every week. We went to synagogue every Shabbat morning. We kept kosher at home, but not outside of the home. Um, I went to Hebrew school. I went to Jewish camp. And so Judaism was really infused in our lives, but I didn't know a lot. Um, I, I, I just want just to pause you for yeah. a second to translate that joke. In case people didn't get oh, it. Oh, yes, I will translate the joke. So um, usually people who are observant of Shabbat say they are Shomer Shabbat, which means they keep Shabbat. Um, and the keeping of Shabbat, which comes from the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, um, is usually associated with the prohibitions of Shabbat. So, for example, people don't do work. They don't write. They don't sow. If you plow, you don't plow on Shabbat. Um, but in the book of Exodus, it says to remember Shabbat, to be Zocher at Yom HaShabbat. And that's remembrance. And traditionally, remembrance is associated with the positive commandments of Shabbat. So that's things like light candles and make kiddush and, um, you know, be together as a family and enjoy yourself. So my family really um, was heavy on the things that you do and not so heavy on the things that you don't do. Um, but when I was in high school, I decided that in addition to being Zohar Shabbat, I also wanted to be Shomer Shabbat. Um, and then I gradually became more, more strict in my observance of other laws, also in laws of kashrut and the laws of, um, of sniut, of modesty, all of those different things. Um, but I knew a lot, but I didn't know anything about where those things I knew came from. Mm -hmm. Like I knew from experience, I didn't know from learning. And I think, um, I think that as, especially as I was becoming more immersed in the um, in a particular segment of the observant Jewish community, I wanted to know more about why these things I was doing that I knew felt meaningful, but I didn't know where they came from. So I wanted to know more about where they came from. Um, and I think that's why when my roommate said, you should go learn Talmud, that that actually seemed like a natural thing for me to do. Because there was a part of me that was already looking for that. Mm -hmm. was, was that when you like first got into Talmud, it, you, you, um, you know, something about it grabbed you? Did you go through like this sort of... Um, uh, difficult second act you're like ah oh, this this is way too hard i can't do this um it definitely was discouraging to get to court class every day and find that my notes had no relation to what was actually happening in the text i eventually stopped um because the way the class was structured was uh my my chavruta my study partner and i would prepare in in pairs and then we would go back to class and have class on the material we had just prepared and what we prepared almost never bore any relation to what we then talked about in class so that was frustrating um, to be sure, but um, I sort of didn't mind, which was interesting because I'm, I'm really a, I've, I'm a chronic overachiever. Um, and so 
I think part of what told me that this was really something was that I didn't mind being wrong. Mm -hmm. Usually I minded being wrong. Like I was the sort of kid where if I got a 97, I would be disappointed that I didn't get a hundred. And so the fact that I could get like, I mean, I wasn't being graded, but the equivalent of like a 32 and that that felt okay. Um, that was something really different for me. And the fact that, that, um, that was the way I interacted with this text, like, of course it was frustrating. It was frustrating much of the time, but even when it was frustrating, it didn't make me want to just walk away from it. I st something was still drawing me back. Where, where do you think that comes from? The, the being okay with 32s on it? I, I don't know. It's a really good question. Um, I think part of it is probably willful ignorance, like thinking <laughs> I would get better quickly, which I didn't um, because most people don't because Talmud's really hard. Um, and... It's, it's so cheesy, but you know, what I tell people when they ask me is I didn't fall in love with my husband at first sight, but I sort of fell in love with Talmud at first sight. Cute. Um, I actually once wrote an article for The Forward about like falling in love with Talmud that they, they published on Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, and they, there was this amazing illustration of like me, I mean, it was a drawing, so it wasn't actually me, but like a, a girl lying in bed with like a masechet of Talmud under her arm, um, like under the covers. It's sort of weird, but... Um, yeah, I just fell in love. I don't, I don't know. Why do we fall in love? I don't know. Why indeed? Okay, I want to dig into something you, you said there. You're like, I thought I'd get better at it, like, really quickly, which I didn't. People don't because Talmud is hard. Yes. Like, you say Talmud is hard, right? There's, there's a lot going on there. What's, what's like, like, when you, when you experienced the hardness at first, was it, did, you, did you figure out, like, the language was difficult? Did you find the logical forms difficult? Did you find the shorthand difficult? Um, so I actually was fairly good at the logical forms. Um, the Talmud thinks in a particular way, and I'm lucky that my brain naturally can think in that way. I found the language very... Centuries of breathing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I found the language very difficult. Um, I had modern Hebrew. I didn't have any Mishnaic Hebrew, and I certainly didn't have any Aramaic. So I, that was very hard. Um, and yeah, and the Talmud speaks in tremendous shorthand. Like I find now when I write on the board with my students, I'm putting like entire sentences in brackets in order to explain what those two words that they just said actually means. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I found is learning Talmud as opposed to say learning Mishnah, um, the language of the Mishnah is much easier, but actually Mishnah is harder in certain ways because every Mishnah is a new concept. The Talmud really recycles its forms and its vocabulary over and over again. So in certain ways, once you have the basis of Talmud, you can at least parse a page, even if you don't understand what's going on. Um, but that takes a really long time to learn how to do. Um, and even eventually you get to the point where even if you know what all the words on the page mean, you're still not sure how to make them into comprehensible sentences. Um, you know, I think that it was a it was a book that was compiled for a group of insiders who learned from other insiders mm. who assumed that everyone who read this book would know the, the language. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the movement to translate the Talmud first with the Sancino and then with the Art Scroll and now with um, Adin Steindaltz and Koran is there's actually a lot of controversy around doing that because there are people who think that only those who can access text in the original should have access to the text mm. um, and that that's how you maintain it for insiders. Um, and that other people shouldn't be trusted with it. How do you feel about that? Um, I disagree with that. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's right. Well, first of all, it's meant to keep people like me outside, right? Both as someone who came to Talmud as an adult and as a woman, it's meant to keep me outside. Um, 
I don't allow students to use, like my first teacher, I don't allow students to use translations in my class because I think that they're a crutch. And if you want to learn how to learn, translations are not the way to do it. But I think the fact that my students, for example, can learn new material on their own and use translations as a dictionary or to, to help them along in the process, I think that's an amazing thing. And I don't, it's true that the rabbis were elitists, but the rabbis, you know, thought that I could get my period if I took two cows having sex. So like the rabbi thought a lot of things that I don't agree with, right? So <laughs> um, I was talking about that in my last panel. So um, anyway, so I think that the idea is that, um, yes, this was conceived in a particular sort of environment, but the same way that oral traditions get written down because the reality's changed, I think our relationships to Talmud should change because realities have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see the value of the core text of the Jewish tradition being maintained only for a small elite. I don't see what the value of that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is about power and control then. Um, and I think, I think more Torah is always better. And if this helps people access Torah, then I think that's great. Fair. Um, you, you talked a bit about like some of the, it, some of it being meant to keep you on the outside, mm-hmm. both as someone who came as an adult, as a woman. Um, and something you mentioned off mic um, before, which was I found really striking, was um, uh, you said that it, as a, as a woman involved in Talmud, you're always controversial. And um, do you do you feel like during your time in Talmud that the attitude of people towards women in Talmud has changed? So I just want to clarify. I don't think I'm always controversial. I think there are always people who find me controversial. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a small distinction, but it's important. Um, has it changed? Yes, I think it actually has changed. I think, um, at least in America, I can't speak about, and, and in Israel, I can't speak beyond those two places, but um, I think there's more acceptance of um, women having access to Talmud. I think more high schools are teaching girls Talmud, mm. um, even if not in co-ed classes. I think well, I know that there are schools that 10 years ago wouldn't hire female Talmud teachers who now will. Um, and in particularly in the Orthodox world, um, there's more acceptance around the idea of women as learners and teachers of Jewish text, including Talmud, um, whether as clergy, which is only true in a very particular part of the world or in other sorts of leadership roles. But um, as much as sometimes it's discouraging, I actually do think things are changing really quickly. Um, that being said, you know, if you go into the Haredi world, for example, women are still not encountering these texts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still exclusively the domain of men. Um, but the other thing that's interesting that's happened is in more liberal Jewish communities, overall, there's been a resurgence of interest in these texts. So there, the boundary hasn't been gender. The boundary has been the feeling of like sitting in the Beit Midrash and learning is not, is, is for basically the Orthodox. And in the conservative and reform worlds, there's now been an attempt to um, to reclaim the process of text study, which I think is really good, to mm-hmm. go back to text and to that sort of um, rigor in learning. How, how do you grapple with, um, there's, this, there's this interesting uh, mission in Soita where one of the Rabbonim, he, described, he, he says like, it's a man is um, obliged to teach his daughter Gemara, and then someone else says teaching his daughter Torah is, is uh, teaches her what is it, tiflis i think yes the term is, yes which how do you how do you translate that word so yeah so um right so should we teach our daughter's torah well what's interesting so tiflut is usually um so if i were to translate tiflut i'd probably translate it as vanity not vanity as in that person is so vain but as in it is in vain um and it's because 
the, the assumption is usually that women have a lightness of mind um, that makes Torah sort of float in and out one ear, um, in one ear and out the other ear. Even that, what does a lightness of mind mean? It, I mean, it seems to mean women aren't serious, right? That they're not, they're not rigorous in thoughts. And so why teach them something that requires, I feel like I keep using this word rigor, but why teach them something that is intellectually demanding when they don't have the capacity to learn it, right? It would be like trying to learn Talmud with a three-year-old. Like a three-year-old just can't grasp that. Um, you know, what's interesting about the Mishnah and Sota, of course, is that the reason why fathers should teach their daughters Torah in that Mishnah is because that way, if they are accused of adultery by their husbands, the Torah will protect them from the Sota ritual working on them. So even the one who thinks you should teach them Torah, there's a particular sexism behind that suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that it's, it's interesting to associate accusations of adultery with the idea of women learning Torah. Because of course, if you're a good chaste woman, then you aren't going to be accused of adultery. And therefore you probably also don't need to learn Torah. There's something almost rebellious about this woman who needs to learn Torah. Um, you know, some people have argued that women in the Talmud don't exist today, that that category of gender um, has basically fallen away and that women today are more like men in the Talmud in terms of giving access to education, working outside of the home, not marrying at the age of 12 and then having children right away. Um, I find this to be an interesting idea. I'm not totally convinced by it, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that if we're living in a world where we have the same demands of boys and girls in terms of secular education, I don't see why we shouldn't have the same demands of Jewish education as well. Do you feel like if you could, if you would, this is sort of like, I guess, I guess a try, an attempt at an empathy question because like, I find it really difficult to try and predict what any of the rabbis in, in the Gemara are going to say or do next. Like, no matter how much time I spend mm-hmm. with it. That's the fun of it. That's the fun of it. <laughs> but it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, you know, like there's this trend in modern theater, where, not modern theater, modern like televisual presentation, I guess, where it's like you want to subvert expectations and what that actually amounts to is like just chaotic, haphazard plot points that don't really go together and like a really unsatisfying narrative experience. But like, um, Gamar, I don't know what anyone's going to do next, but once they do it, I'm like, oh, classic Rabbi Eichanan. <laughs> do, do you get that sense? Yes. So, so do you get like, do you get because you, you seem like like someone who's very very serious about not just like scholarship on itself but scholarship in conversation with the actual rabbis as people mm-hmm. they seem to be actual characters do you get a sense that if like you like were, were chatting to Rabbi Eliezer or something that he'd be like that he'd be like vaguely in favor or vaguely opposed or like able to be swayed on by, like, by me learning Torah yeah well I think Rabbi Eliezer would have to come to 2019 and spend some time in 2019 and see how it works. Right. And then, um, could Rabbi Eliezer be swayed? Yeah, I think Rabbi Eliezer maybe. Rabbi Shimon probably not. Okay. Because um, he's sort of a misogynist. But, um... I do not endorse these views. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think it's so controversial to say that some of the rabbis in the Talmud are la, misogynists. La, la. <laughs> Anyway, but... What do you mean? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. They're all perfect and never do anything wrong. Um, well, look, I think part of what we see is that they have to adapt to changing circumstances um, all of the time. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why the Mishnah gets written down. That's what happens with the students of Rabbi Akiva trying to reconstruct their teacher's ideas. Um, so, you know, the question is, how adaptable are you? Um, but... 
I think rabbinic literature is meant to be adaptable. Like, I think that's built into the system. So would they feel comfortable with me? Well, I assume at first, at least, they would be pretty freaked out by me. Um, but I actually, I don't believe that I'm doing anything rebellious. Mm-hmm. Like, I, to me, what I'm doing is, first of all, like, what spoke to my soul, to go back to the cheesy idea. Um, but also just, I'm, I'm trying to increase the amount of Torah in the world. You know, right. like the person who... Um, my, my teacher at, at Drisha, Rabbi David Silber, who's the founder of Drisha, he always says he didn't found Drisha because women needed Torah. He founded Drisha because Torah needed women, right? Because he said, what, what good does it do to exclude? If we think it's always better to have more Torah in the world, why are we excluding half of the population? That's, that's not about feminism. That's about what's good for Judaism and what's good for Torah. And I, I think that's really true. Um, Because apart from the fact that I can bring different perspectives to the text, but men can also bring different perspectives to the text. The more people you have engaging in conversation, Mm. the better it is for the Jewish people and for Torah, I think. Mm. Interesting. I I definitely hear that. I'm I'm interested in, um, this is like a sort of a complete left turn, uh, but I I had the good fortune to be at one of your sessions uh, here at Limwood yesterday. Um, and you would, you were going through some stories from the Talmud, and you mentioned something about a fiery bear. Yes. Tell me about the fiery okay, bear. Okay, so this is a story that I think it appears in Tanit, but I would have to check to make sure. So if I'm wrong, I apologize. Um, but um, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, um, he's a special person in rabbinic literature because he is a person, but a person who never dies and instead gets taken up to heaven. This happens in, in the uh, Malachim Bet in the Book of Kings. Um, and so his role in rabbinic literature is very much to be an intermediary between heaven and earth. And mm. so um, in this story, what happens is he goes, um, apparently once a month on Rosh Chodesh, he goes and visits uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's Beit Midrash. Um, and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, also known as Rebbe, um, the, the author, compiler of the Mishnah, one day scolds Eliyahu and he says, Eliyahu, why were you late? And Eliyahu says, oh, I had to wake up Avraham, wash his hands, wait till he finished davening, put him back to sleep, wake up Yitzchak, do the same thing, put him back to sleep, and then again with Yaakov. And it takes a while because like all these, they're all davening. And Rebbe asks what I think is a good question, because if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that all three of them are buried in the same place. So Rebbe says, why don't you just wake up all three of them at the same time, right? It would be so much more efficient. And um, Eliyahu Anavi says, because if all three of them davened at the same time, it would bring Mashiach before his time. Oof. He would bring the Messiah too early. So Rebbe, his wheels get turning. And remember that Rebbe's living in a moment in time where the temple has been destroyed in relatively recent memory. Um, there's just been the non- unsuccessful Bar Kokhba rebellion where they thought the Messiah had come and it turned out it didn't and it wiped out Rabbi Akiva and most of his disciples. And so you can imagine that Rebbe's feeling really ready for Mashiach to come. So Rebbe says to Eliyahu Anavi, hey, is there anyone around today who might like, be similarly meritorious? And the answer that um, Eliyahu Anavi gives is um, Rebbe Chia and his sons. Classic. So what does Rebbe do? He does exactly what you would expect him to do, which is he calls a fast, which is what you do when you need rain. And so he calls a fast and he has Rebbe, uh, Rebbe uh, is it, I think it's Rebbe Chia, but Rebbe Chia and his sons, he has them come and lead davening. This is his plan, because the idea is they're going to daven, and when they say mechayi hametim, right, who gives life to the dead, the dead will come back, and Mashiach will come, and that will be it. So this is their plan. So the three of them are up there, um, they're davening, and they say, 
Mashiv Haruach, right? Who make, God who makes the wind blow, the wind blows. They say, Marid Hagashem, who makes the rain fall, the rain starts to fall. And it says in the Gemara that when they reached the words of Mechaye Hametim, who gives life to the dead, the whole earth starts to shake. So then the scene cuts to heaven and um, the angels um, are like, who told, right? Who told that um, this is the way to bring Mashiach? And one of the angels says, it was Eliyahu Anabi, he tells on him. Oh, what a snitch. Yeah, so he tells on him. So they bring Eliyahu and they give him 40 fiery lashes. They lash him with fire. And then they say to him, basically, you have to fix this problem. So Eliyahu Anabi disguises himself as a fiery bear. I don't know why, but that's what he is. And he runs into the shul and breaks up Rabbi Chia and his sons before they can say Mechaiah Hametim, and therefore Mashiach doesn't come. And that is the story. It's a great story. <laughs> Also, like, why a fiery bear? Yeah. It's so random. As, as, as my friend Bear uh, actually points out, like, bears are, are water-aligned. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird story. Yeah. You would think, like, a lion, right, because Judah. Like, there's all sorts of things you would expect, but a fiery bear. But that's part of, like, that particular prophetic tradition, of course, because, like, it's um, Eliyahu's student, Elisha, who uh, summons a couple of bears when... When he's getting mocked, yeah, give a bit of the old mole to the to the youngsters. Right. So maybe that's what it's about, right? And obviously you have the fire and the lashes, and then the fire and the bear. I also feel like if a regular bear ran into the shul, that probably would have been enough to break up the whole thing. But I guess if you make it a fiery bear, you're sure that it'll break up the party. <laughs> um, it's a weird story, um, but it's first of all, it's very good suspense because they're about to say Mechai Hametim, and then you cut the seed and you go to heaven. Um, but it's also an interesting story because it suggest that somehow people can sort of subvert God's will. There are people whose prayers are so powerful that they can compel God to do things that God doesn't actually want to do. There seems to be a lot of that yeah. in the system. Like a lot of like instant wind buttons that are like covered over with like a little bit of branches and leaves and like a big sign saying don't press. Right, exactly. Um, where you also see it with Choni, um, where Choni stands in the circle and says, I'm not going to leave till it rains. And it seems from the story that God, this is a Mishnah and Tani, that God actually doesn't want to make it rain. Because it first like drizzles a little bit, and Choni's like, "That's not what I wanted," and then it starts to pour buckets, sort of like it did today. And Choni says, "That's also not what I want," and then it starts to rain regularly, um, right? And so it's interesting because you feel when you're reading the story, either God is messing with Choni, which is possible, or the other alternative is that God actually doesn't want to make it rain, but that God is sort of powerless against Choni's prayer, and so at first, at least, tries to give Choni bad rain. Mm. Um, like as an assertion of God's power. But ultimately, once Choni is specific enough, he gets what he's asking for. In the end of that Mishnah, Shimon ben Shetach, who's the head of the, the Sanhedrin, the head of the court at that moment, he actually says to Choni, I, don't, I, sh- I would punish you because you acted like a spoiled child. Mm. But what can I do? God listened to you. Right? Mm. It's interesting. Like Shimon ben Shetach is not comfortable with the way that this story unfolds. Was it Shimon ben Shetach the witcher? Same guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he has the strong arm of the law. Exactly. Something I heard quite recently. So he's a guy who's known for, um, uh, I think, like executing 80 witches in Ashkelon on the Yes, same day. that's a Rashi in Sanhedrin, yes. But so then apparently... 40 witches. 40 witches. No, wait, 80 witches. No, yeah. Ah, you yeah. were right. Um, he, so apparently he's one of the relatives of those witches, like framed his son. Yes. Oh, this is heartbreaking. Yeah, so the way it, the story comes up is that Rashi... Um, there, the Gemara just says this very strange thing, which is um, it's talking about the, the conversation in the Gemara is about if witnesses recant on testimony that's been given 
in order to put someone to death. If they recant and give a reason for their um, recanting, can we believe them? Because in general, in Judaism, we have this principle of um, once you've testified, you can't come back and give different testimony. Because we assume that you, you were telling the truth the first time, and so we assume anything you say later, you're lying. So interesting that we assume in that direction, not the other. So then the question the Gemara asks is, what if the witnesses say, I lied, and then they explain why they lied? Then can we believe them? And the answer is no. And the Gemara just there says, um, like what happened with Baya. And they don't say anything else. So there's a humongous Rashi, um, and Rashi is embellishing a story that also appears in Yerushalmi um, about what is this Baya. So they, it's Baya apparently was a tax collector. It's a really weird and long story, but um, the the end of the story is basically that Shimon ben Shetach takes these wishes, witches in Ashkelon, and puts them all to death. He hangs them all in one day, um, and the relatives get angry about it, and so they frame Shimon ben Shetach's son. And when Shimon Mechetach's son is going to be put to death, he says, I don't blame the court. I blame these witnesses against me. Um, and basically, they should never be forgiven for, for causing, basically killing me, for causing me to be put to death. Um, and then the witnesses get really scared. And they say, like, no, we lied. And we lied because we were mad about Shimon Mechetach. But they don't believe them. And Shimon Mechetach's son is put to death. It's a terrible story. Awful. Yeah, I, I I think I, I remember it's like coming at, like coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is if I think if the witnesses recant before judgment has been passed and the condemned man taken to be executed, like yes, taken yes, on the yes, way yes, it executed. has to be before the decree has been made. Right. Then they can recant, but once the decree has been made, they can't recant it. So in this situation, the decree had been made, and yes. his son was on his way to being executed. Right, and these were like his final words. Yeah. Or made the witnesses never be forgiven for what they did to me. And then, like, their account, and it was really obvious it was a frame job, but because, like, the law demands exactly. that his son be put to death, Shimon ben Shetach, like, went through with it. Exactly. <sighs> There's all sorts of things in the Talmud. I mean, that's Rashi. That's not the Gemara itself, but yeah. Well, that's, that's it. I just, just remembering that story just, just breaks my heart. The strangest thing is that a version of that story, not with the ending, but with the part with the witches of Ashkelon and everything, apparently that's been made into a Jewish children's book, which like seems oh, really weird. Good. But at the end, the witches just like melt or fly away or something. Yeah, they don't, yeah. they don't, ex- they don't hang them in the court. I'm really interested in this book. I, I haven't actually seen it, but one of my students, I was learning the story with her and she said, oh yeah, I think I have a book about that at home. So. I'm very interested. <laughs> yeah. I'm very interested. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, we don't have a huge amount of time, but I wanted to ask you about um, circling back around to something you said about the Talmud being hard. Um, you've thought a lot about pedagogy with yes. the Talmud. How to teach Talmud well. Yes. That's um, also hard. How to teach Talmud well is also hard. Teaching Talmud well is hard. So let's, 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 start, let's start with where we're not, right? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the thing that everyone does when they're teaching Talmud and it's, like, really, really bad and that's the wrong way to teach Talmud? Um, well, I'm not... I, so I want to start by saying that I've had the benefit of mostly really good teachers, um, which is unusual. And what, I find that when I tell people what I do, I tend to end up in, like, Talmud therapy, where people feel like <laughs> they have to, like, tell me about their Gemara Rabbi in eighth grade who, like, traumatized them forever and that's why they hate Talmud. And I'm like... I, I was just like trying to buy an ice cream sandwich, but good to know. Um, Talmud therapist is a pretty good niche, to be honest. Yes. Um, my husband thinks I should start a Talmudic advice column where people write in with questions and I write answers based on what the Talmud would say. This is his big idea for oh, me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, um, 
I can't say too much about it, but I'm currently in talks on a very similar idea. Oh, okay. So there you go. Yeah. Um, so, um, so how is Talmud taught badly? I think, well, first of all, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but in America, um, in America, a lot of schools teach Talmud in Hebrew. They do Ivrit Ivrit, so they teach Judaic studies in Hebrew. And I think that's a big mistake because most students' Hebrew is not really good enough and Talmud is hard. So the idea that they have to translate the Talmud from the Mishnaic Hebrew or the Aramaic into English in their heads and then back into Hebrew, I think is bad for everyone. So that's step one that I think so is you're, bad. So this is yeshivas in Israel catering to... No, yeshivas non- in America. Oh, oh. Like Jewish day schools in America yeah, tend okay. to teach Talmud in Hebrew. So okay. I think that that is bad. Fine. Um, I think people don't spend enough time on the structure of the text and the seams in the text. So this is how you know Atana is finished speaking. Um, this is where the stamaim, the editors, are interjecting. Here's how this, the piece of text got reconstructed. Because if students can better see the pieces, it's easy to grasp. It's easier to grasp each individual piece and then put it back together like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also Talmud is often presented as a the voice of truth and b a single voice. And like mm-hmm. if you read the Talmud, that's clearly not true. And so, um, but a lot of people don't want to acknowledge the complexity that exists in the text. Right. Um, and so then when people ask big questions, like they're told, well, that's not an appropriate question. But actually that's what the rabbis are doing all the time. All the time. All the like time. incessantly. Right, exactly. And so, you know, um, I think part, and then I think like there's not enough acknowledgement of the fact that Talmud is hard. You know, one of my big soapboxes is that women should have more access to Talmud, but I think men should have more access to non-Talmud. Like, one of the things that happens is in yeshivot, and this is true in, um, in um, high schools, or um, this is true if you go to Israel for a year, that men are expected to learn Talmud. Not everyone likes Talmud. Talmud's mm. not for everyone. I love Talmud, but I don't think it's for everyone. And I think that too. if, I know, but I think that if what it means to be like a Jewish man wasn't so bound up in the study of Talmud, that that would be good for people. Like, let people learn Tanakh. Let people learn philosophy. Let them learn, um, you know, um, Jewish thought or Jewish history. Mm. Like, there's so many different kinds of Torah. And I think if we stopped making Talmud the be-all and end-all for men, then it would be less controversial for women. And men wouldn't... Then I wouldn't have to hear those stories about the sixth-grade Gemara Rebbe who made everything terrible because there wouldn't be the sense of, well, now my whole Jewish identity is bound up in this thing that I don't even like. Right. That's interesting. Um, like, there's there's one sort of game to be good at, right. and that game is Gemara. Right. And, and there are many Gemara. men who are excellent Tanakh students. Why don't we just let them learn Tanakh? Like, why are we telling them it's, like, not manly of them to learn Tanakh? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Um... <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before. It's not manly to learn Tanakh. But it's true, like, the thing But it should, right, it should be manly. Yeah. I mean, I don't really care about being manly, like, for men. But, like, I, you know, I think, you know, we talk about Torah being everything, but then that we, the way that, that children are educated, there's so much emphasis put on Talmud, in some schools for both men, for both boys and girls, and in some schools just for boys. Right. Um, and it means that if Talmud doesn't speak to you, and I've seen with my students, like I have students who come to learn for a summer, and at the end they're like, I am not a Talmud person. Mm. And, you know, I wish I could make everyone a Talmud person, but there's still so many other ways for them to engage in serious Jewish learning. It doesn't yeah. have to only happen this way. It's it's really, so this is this is really interesting for me, because like, I'm, I'm going through, like, I don't know that I've ever dealt with this thought as seriously as you're, you're putting it forward now, 
But um, I had I had a chavrusa with a with a friend um, for a while now that we've that we've been doing Pirkei Avos together and just like doing the Pirkei Avos and then like talking about like the text as a wisdom tradition and like why are the rabbis saying this and like what what sort of social context they're embedded in and like what are they trying to do and what trying to kind of society are they angling for here what does this mean for justice and all this stuff and it worked really well um, like it's it we had a really good chavrusa because of that. And like I, the reason that I think like going into it, the reason that I knew that that was gonna um, be like a hit, as it were, was because like I, you know, he's a, he's a guy that I've known for many years, but also like he he'd um, recommended a novel that had just like blown him blown him out of the water, and like there's this there's this running theme through the novel that like there's a there's a there's a wisdom book there's a that just keeps showing up and I'm like yeah I recognize this and I recognize how like these thought patterns are working, and so like I knew that this is the sort of thing that's going to talk to him and I and I like if if we if we'd started on on like a, a hard sugya forget it it would have just been like artificial structures all the way down and long before anyone got anywhere right and and that kind of learning is incredibly valuable and I think. We do everyone a disservice when we say, oh, well, it's just, quote, unquote, just Mishnah, mm. right? What, what do you mean just Mishnah? There would be no Gemara if you didn't have Mishnah. Mm. Um, so I, I think part of the reason people laud Talmud is because it's hard. But just because it's hard, it doesn't mean it's good. I mean, I think it's good, mm. right? But, um, you know, Tanakh might be on the surface of it less complex, but there's still a tremendous amount of depth and wisdom to be gleaned from it. Right. And just because you're not like breaking your teeth over Aramaic, unless you're, I guess, like learning, learning Danielle or something, but um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that that's not substantive learning. Sure. Um, it's funny that I'm sitting here making an argument for learning more Tanakh when I <laughs> like just want to learn Talmud all the time. Um, but I, you know, the more the more outlets we give people, because um, I think then also Talmud will stop being so scary. Because if, if you see it as the pinnacle, then you feel like, well, I, I'm not ready to reach that pinnacle yet, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's just one of a number of other sources and we look at them all as equally valuable, mm-hmm. um, then you can say, like, what kind of Jewish learning is most meaningful to me? And then you actually want to do Jewish learning instead of saying, well, I don't like learning Talmud, so I might as well not learn anything at all. Interesting. Really interesting. Do you, do you feel like... Um, so so something, something that, like seems to me to be the case and i don't know if this is something you recognize or not is that um a lot of a lot of people who are raised on talmud um and then like not much like ordinary social contact mm-hmm. end up being like really bright but like really like emotionally stunted <laughs> well if you learn talmud you're gonna come away with a lot of mistaken assumptions about women about non-jews about children right like because there's a lot of talking about the lifespan of eagles yes the lifespan of eagles right so all of these things you're gonna i mean because there's a lot in the talmud that's interesting but wrong right um either like scientifically or just our society isn't like that anymore um so if you live or in a like world... Or just like, it's, it's a five-way disagreement and you can't all be right. Right, exactly. And, you know, and so if you live in a world where like you've never talked to a woman, but you've learned about women in the Talmud, like you're not going to be able to talk to a woman. Nah, probably not. Um, certainly not as a person. Because you're yeah. going to like see her as like, yeah. oh, one of those things I learned about in Kedushin, right? As opposed to like, oh, here's another person. There's, there's, this, um, there's this fantastic joke that I really like. It's on the back of... Um, uh, Maccabee and Mankiewicz's um, uh, The Day God Laughed. I think it's on the back of that book. 
Um, but it's it's like with with the intro, it's uh, there's a yeshiva student who's sitting in a yeshiva for um, just all day every day, just staying away. And his friends like, come on, go outside once in a while. And he's like, no, no. Finally, they prevail upon him to go for a walk through the countryside. And as he's walking through the countryside with his friends, he sees like this this strange animal behind a fence, like scratching at the ground and, and pecking at it. And he says, what strange manner of beast is this? And they say, oh, that, that's a hen. And he says, oh, it's the Heilige Tarnagoyles from Megamore. <laughs> so, you know, that it's that, but right. like multiplied up. Right, and you know, the you know, the piece in the Gemara and Kedushin that everyone loves to quote about the, the machloket, which is greater study or action, and the answer is that study is greater, but because study leads to action. So look, I love Torah Lishma. I love ter- learning Torah just for its own sake, but you're not meant to exist in a silo. Right. You're meant to take that Torah and go out in the world and do something with right. it. Um, and so I think if the rabbis saw like people who just sit inside and learn all day and like don't talk to anyone else and don't do anything else, I, I think that that would be confusing to them. Um, oh, I could, can I push back on that a sure. bit? I don't think it would be confusing to them. Like we have examples. You know, the children of Yizachar and like Ben Azai, no, Ben Zama. Right, but you also have the conversation between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua where Rabbi Gamliel is really surprised that Rabbi Yeshua has a job and Rabbi Yeshua, he's a blacksmith and Rabbi Yeshua says, guess what, Rabbi Gamliel, everyone has a job, right? <laughs> Most of us are not like you. We can't afford to just learn all day. Um, <laughs> And, uh, right, and it's this important moment because Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel, who's born into the family of the patriarch, and so he has money and he has status and he's the head of the Beit Midrash, although at this moment he's been deposed, which is why he's going to speak to Rabbi Yeshua, but um, he just has no sense of the fact that this is right. not financially viable for right. the rest of the community. Um, you know, Masorti Olami in Israel, the conservative movement in Israel, put out posters um, like on bus shelters this point a bunch of years ago, but I've seen it because one of my friends got a copy and it hangs in her sukkah every year. Um, uh, posters where it lists all the different rabbis um, in the Talmud and also in like among the Rishonim in the medieval period um, and what their jobs were outside of learning Torah. And it's basically like an argument against supporting for people while they're learning Kola right, for years right. and years and yeah. years. Um, but the point is like Rashi has another job. Now, or at least Rashi has another job to the point where he has enough money that he has other people to take care of his vineyard. Right. But like the Rambam is a doctor and Rabbi Yeshua is a blacksmith, right? That there's there's an engagement. It's it's partly about the financial responsibility, but there's also the sense that there's an engagement with the outside world, mm. right? And in fact, like the Bati Midrash would, um, the main Bati Midrash would be open only two months a year and everyone would go in Tishrei and they would go in um, and in Nisan, and they would go and learn. And the rest of the time, they would be given a masachet. This is during the Gonic period. They'd be given a masachet. They would go home and learn the masachet. And then they would go for a month, and they would learn um, learn in the yeshiva, whatever the masachet was. And then they would go back again. Um, this was the kala. The, that's where this idea of calling large assemblies, like a yerche kala, comes from. And so... Mm. Um, so that doesn't mean they weren't learning. They were learning when they were home, but they were also having jobs and they were being with their families. That there's, there's Torah is not meant to be a silo. I actually taught a right. class here at Limud about that, right? That um, when you live in a world where you're only doing Torah all of the time, bad things happen to you and your family. Right. Well, this is, I mean, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this bit on this. I, I remember I was learning with my Pirkavas, Chavros, and Nathan, I mentioned earlier, and um, he, he pointed out that, like, there's this bit in, in, in Perkavis where um, it says something like, you know, Torah without a job leads a man to all sorts of horrible stuff and terrible, terrible state of affairs. 
like I think the phrase is Torim Derech Eretz, maybe? Yes, Torim Derech Eretz, yeah. Um, and then also, again, like, in, in Torah B'Kemach, in Kemach right. B'Torah, you go on to the theme of a bit, and he said that he really liked the fact that you have all these 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 things being put forward, and then, like, later on, you have a, um, uh, like, just this offhanded reference to um, Yonatan Hasandler, Yonatan the sandal maker. Right. And he said, and then he goes on this point, and he says he really liked the fact that, you know, that, it wasn't, you know, they didn't do a big fanfare of it, but it's just like, that was his job. Right. He was a sandal maker. Right, and nobody, except maybe Robin Gamliel, but other than Robin Gamliel, no one looks down on him for that. Because right. they understand he has, you know, one of the difference between, differences between Judaism and some other religions is Judaism doesn't see monasticism as the ideal. Right. Like, you're meant to marry, you're meant to have a family, you're meant to be engaged in the wider outside world. Mm. Um, because Torah, Torah for its own sake is valuable, but... One of the reasons you learn Torah is so you can teach it to the next generation. Um, and one of the reasons you learn Torah is so you know what to do in terms of living like a, a proper Jewish life. And so um, that doesn't mean you should go into every class with a particular agenda of like, this mm. is what I want to take from it. But I think at the end of the day, what we see is the rabbinic ideal is really how are you taking this serious learning that you're doing and bringing it into the world? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why as much as like part of me, if I could afford it, which I can't because I was in graduate school for a thousand years, but part of me <laughs> would like loves the idea of just like learning in Kolel. I mean, I don't know where I would do it either because I'm a woman, but I, I also am at There's the moment in my life. There's a Streisand movie that can it's help true, you It's true. It's true. Yes. If I want to, if I want to uh, become yet, but, um, but I think that I also, and I felt this really strongly the last couple of years of graduate school, like I want to be out in the world doing something because mm. what's the point of me? learning all of this if I'm just going to keep it to myself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah for sure. Well, it's interesting when you talk about, like, the, the engagement of the rabbis of the world, um, and, and you mentioned, like, Masechet Kedushin specifically. Um, I, it, it's interesting to me because I was in a um, Kedushin shear and, and like, just, just going over, especially, like, the first few pages where they're talking about different scenarios, mm-hmm. like a man will, will, like, give a woman something, like, say, betroth the fist, and she right. takes and, like, throws it into the sea. It's right. like, is or she, she mad at me? Right, he tries to use figs, and she eats them, because she, like, thinks he's just giving her a snack. So uh, he's like, right. behold, you're betrothed to me with these figs. But she, like, doesn't realize he's trying to betroth her, and she's just like, oh, thanks for the food. And then, right. So, yeah. So, like, this sort of thing. And then, like, this is one case... Um, where a guy gives a he gives he gives a woman a um, a rolled up mat, and he and, and he says um, uh, like it's a it's a massive like myrtle front. He gets, says, "Behold, you betrothed to me with this," and then um, the there's like the people around are saying, um, "Oh, uh, you know that 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 mat you gave her is like not worth um, it's not worth a pruta. So it's you can't it's not worth enough money to be to to count as a betrothal item." And so he's like, well, in that case, um, be betrothed to me with the four, with the four, what was it? Some four zuzim, I think, four zuzim um, that are inside, wrapped inside the mat that she didn't know about. And and then it's this case says uh, she she kept the mat and remained silent. So she didn't give it back to him. Um, and, and then the question is like, you know, are did that betrothed? work? Are yeah. And it's like, you know, they're pulling it up from different angles. And, like, one of the angles that I think is, like, really clearly, like, explicitly stated is, like, well, maybe it's sort of embarrassing. Like, now there's a whole big fanfare and she's, like, you know, the whole lot of people excited about it. Like, oh, sort of embarrassing for her to hand it back. Right. And, like, that level of, of, 
a sophisticated attention to like the emotional state of the people involved, forget about it for yeah. like I, most people who are studying that masechta. Right. It's rough. Yeah. But hopefully it can become a model for this is how you should think about these things. Don't only think about the legal aspects, think about the emotional aspects. Mm. Um, that's something the rabbis talk about a lot. Um, I mean, the, the, this that, that sort of like guides me Ever, ever so seamlessly into something um, you mentioned beforehand, which is your doctorate was on the Ben Sora Mara case. Um, and, and one of the things that you're, um, you made the argument on was specifically that the rabbis have their own sort of emotional, moral mm-hmm. perspective. Do you want to unpack that a bit? Sure. Um, you know, hopefully one day you can buy the book and read it once it gets What's turned the, into a book. Oh, you haven't got the book name. Uh, well, the, the dissertation is published. It's called Rebel with a Clause. So, anyway, oh. <laughs> this interview is over. <laughs> I held a dissertation naming contest on Facebook, and that was what won. But um, like most likes, or like the one you like the most? That was the one I liked the most. Okay. Yes, I like a good pun because I'm a rabbinic Jew, so it's in my nature. But rebel um, with a clause, rebel with a clause. Uh, yeah. Uh. So um, anyway, so part of what my um, part of what my dissertation is about is the idea that the rabbis look at the case of the stubborn and rebellious son who appears in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And um, the idea is that if a, if a child is rebellious against his parents, his parents can take him out and stone him, essentially, is the short version, slightly longer version. Um, and what I found from looking at um, five core bodies of rabbinic text, so Mishnah, Tosefta, Midrash Halacha, Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, um, is that what's unusual that's happening here, which you don't usually see, is all of the five texts have a different approach to the case. So usually you see overlap, for example, between Mishnah and Tosefta, between Badli and Yerushalmi. And here there are five totally distinct approaches. Hmm. So what that told me was that it seemed to me that something unusual was happening with this case. And my argument was that the rabbis were basically signaling that they find the stubborn and rebellious son to be a really problematic law in the Torah. But they're not willing to say, oh, we're just going to ignore this law. Because Hmm. the idea is that the Torah comes from God. And you can't just say, God said this thing, but actually it's morally incorrect. And so what they do instead is they strive to find ways to reinterpret the text in a way to make it more morally palatable while dramatically limiting the scope of the law and the ways in which it can be applied. And the reason why I think that that's really important um, is because what it shows us is that the rabbis themselves feel like um, there are laws in the Torah that they, they can't allow to stand as they appear, right? And the idea of rabbis reinterpreting the Torah, that's not revolutionary. They do that mm. all the time. But, um, but that there are cases where they're willing to say, we need to reshape this law to fit our moral sensibilities rather than the other way around. And I think that that's really important because that's something we think of as a modern problem. But actually, the rabbinic tradition itself gives us tools for how to deal with morally complicated text. Um, and so that's, that's something I think is really important um, because what it shows us is that when we, when we ask those big moral questions or even when we want to reject a text, part of what we're saying is it's not actually the case that we are doing something in opposition to what the rabbis do or to what the Jewish tradition does. We're actually doing something that's a continuation of that tradition. Um, and I think especially for students who struggle with some of the messages that Judaism sends, it's really important for them to see that those ideas are built into the text itself and that not just this idea that, oh, struggle with God is inherent in Judaism and that's what Israel means, which is all true. And I, I don't mean to make it sound like that's not important, but that actually um, the rabbis have moments where they say, morally, we can't countenance this. And so we're going to recreate it and return it into something else. Um, and 
So we, we, I don't know that, you know, the degree to which people will feel empowered to do that will vary based on their own predilections and the community they come from and all of those pieces. Um, but the fact that it's not oppositional, I think is really important. Mm. And like the fact, I, I think the fact that people see that, see that this is done at least, I mean, even if, even for people who are, who are in the sort of, as you say, in the sort of community where they're probably not going to just go ahead and start reinterpreting halakha themselves. Right. But the fact that they see that it's a part of the tradition right. that, that people are taking a long, hard look at like what the moral implications are of like different laws. Right. Like that's valuable. It's right. useful. Yeah. I think, and I think that's really, I think that's really important because it, it reminds us that questions we have about the rabbis, the rabbis have the same questions about the Torah. Mm. And even if they answer those questions in different ways than we might choose to answer them, I actually think their answers are less important than the fact that they're going through the process of asking. Beautiful. Well, Rachel Rosenthal, I think I could talk to you about Kamora for many hours, <laughs> but we are out of time. It's late at night, so we will stop here. As always, thank you very much for My coming pleasure. on the show. Um, if, uh, do you have anything out that, that people should know about? Um... Um, I actually have a website, so if you want to look me up, you can look me up on my website. It's rachelteachestorah.com. So you can find me there. There are links to some of my writing, um, some of the other work that I do. So, um, And there's also an email address there if you feel like being in touch. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure.